Chapter Six, Part Two of Adventures of the Infallible Godal by Frederick Irving Anderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. An All Star Cast. Two. Old Fifth Avenue is gone and gone forever. There is a fringe along the edge of Washington Square, and for a few blocks to the north, still stubbornly holding out against the encroachment of trade, to suggest the stately solidarity of the aristocracy of this quarter a generation ago. There is a zone now given over to sweatshops, and from 23rd Street North stretches the Rue de la Paix of this side of the water, advancing its half-mile each year with glittering windows. They say it shall not encroach north of the park but it is already there, clamoring at the barrier. As with the lower end of the avenue, this region of super-refined trade to the north still harbors in its midst, stubbornly refusing to move, some examples of the fine old brownstone mansions that gave the avenue its old-time distinction. Such a one is to be found just above the zone where the cross-town flood at 42nd Street disputes the right-of-way with the north and south streams of vehicles and pedestrians. Strangers to New York know it today probably better than the New Yorkers themselves, for the reason that so-called seeing-the-city automobiles, which make this a regular route daily, are always somewhat boisterous when passing the spot. The megaphone man, as noisy as some fishwife at the town pump retailing choice bits of scandal about the great and near-great, raises his trumpet at this point and announces in tones to be heard on the pavement on both sides, in the mansion on your left, ladies and gentlemen, you see the old-time residence of the late Jeremiah Trigg. The name is quite sufficient. Instantly the rubberneck audience begins to titter and to recount to each other the eccentricities of this famous old put-and-call shark of Wall Street. These stories, for a period of many years, flooded the press of the country, and the public, like our friend Moberly Grimsey, makes its friends and accumulates its enemies through the newspapers. In this old house, the man who lived for a principal, and died happy in the consciousness of having confided the administration of his principal to sure hands, spent fifty years of his life. Behind these windows, hung with rich tapestries, he sat in the evening with his wife, playing with a family cat and a ball of yarn. When he had something nice to suggest to his good wife to do for other people, he was too shy to tell her, and the family cat became the medium of his confidence his plans being expressed in a loud voice, clearly audible to the good wife who sat by knitting. There was a little rag doll, loaded with shot, which sat on the floor, and listened with wide open eyes as the cat played unheeding through the unfolding of gorgeous plans to make someone, or many, many ones, happy without knowing the source of that happiness. The doll had a duty in life quite as dignified as that of the cat its duty being to sit tight against the library floor so that the door might not swing shut on its hinges and shut off the coziness of the other room. Uncle Jeremiah, so they jocosely called him downtown, discussed the hopes and fears and tears of their farmers, the old couple counted many countrymen, to whom their bounty was more generous than that of the stubborn soil, much as if they had been sitting before a fire in some rude farmhouse and the cares of the neighborhood were theirs to alleviate with the simplest of godly alms, instead of a complex machinery that every moment must protect itself from lying greed. 
Here in the evening was always the picture of home, a home that is being banished from the many palaces along the way, a home that was not only sufficient unto its own peace and happiness, but which radiated warm beneficence to many other homes. This evening, the evening following that on which Moberly Grimsey at last found a sociable friend at table, the picture was the same, except that Uncle Jeremiah was gone on his long journey. There was an open fire in the deep grate. Outside was the soft coming of evening and gently falling snow. The old lady sat knitting. The big-eyed doll was thinking of the most serious things of life at its post by the door. And the cat, the same cat, languidly studied the ball of yarn, wondering whether, as a matter of fact, it was not getting too old to be frisking this foolish thing about the room. The servants were coming and going on tiptoe over the soft padded carpets, exchanging words in whispers, mysterious whispers, accompanied by smiles that signified that something of moment was afoot. The butler, who had been with the family since they came to town, in his present graduate capacity, was directing the maneuvers from the seclusion of the street hall, out of sight of the old lady. He was whispering to the second butler that the second-in-command was to be in command of this ship, information that had been explained with stolid iteration through many busy days now, days that were busy, but with their business concealed under smooth machinery. The clock on the mantel struck the hour of four. The old lady roused herself with a sigh and looked up with a smile when two plump Irish girls approached and helped her to her feet and muffled her in wraps of downiest texture. She took her cane, and with an arm on each side to support her, she made her way to the door, where, as if by the magic of some hidden stage director, four secretaries were in waiting. They were, in fact, the bodyguard. They were needed. As the door opened, a little man with a greasy black beard, who had been in waiting at the curb, dashed up the steps and attempted to push past the advance guard. He held a paper in his hand, and he cried as the secretary held him off, "'It is most worthy, madam. I could convince you if I could have but a word with you.' "'Mrs. Trigg receives no strangers on account of her advanced years,' explained the secretary politely. And as the party passed down the steps, he successfully blocked the charity-seeker from his prey. The attendants surrounded the old woman like a cloud. There were other importunate ones at the curb, but so closely did the guard cling that they had no opportunity to voice their harsh claims on the bounty of this poor creature. It was always thus. The army studied the habits of this household like a hawk, hovering about the mansion at all hours of the day. "'Did you get a good view of her?' asked Godall. "'Yes,' said young Grimsey. "'I saw her perfectly. It is she, I am certain.' The pair had sauntered up just in time to witness the disgraceful exhibition that was a daily occurrence now. "'Did you notice her cane?' said Grimsey. Godall had not,' he said. "'The ferrule was loose and made a queer noise, like the low string on a violin when she pushed it across the pavement. It was the same cane she used the other night.' "'Delightful,' said Godall. Now we shall see whether the rest of the drama is played according to the cards. It was an hour later when the two sauntered along the avenue just as the returning carriage of Mrs. Jeremiah Trigg drew up at a brownstone house. It was the same carriage, but not the same brownstone house as before. The same curtains, apparently, hung at the windows. The same mellow radiance of the table lamp and the flickering light of the fire played on the tapestries. The same butler waited at the top of the steps. The same cat and doll guarded inside. 
and the same coterie of guards, men, and maids enclosed the figure of Mrs. Jeremiah Trigg as she crossed the pavement. The house occupied the same position in the block, but it was not the same block. The location was half a mile to the north. It was the new home of Mrs. Jeremiah Trigg. Trade, clamoring at her doors, had so far encroached on the old home that it was thought advisable by the family council of lawyers to move the old lady, and to move her, room by room, without any suspicion on her part that she was being moved. Some day, if she did not discover the illusion herself, those servants who loved her as blood kin would tell her of their carefully planned ruse. Tonight she took up her knitting beside the silver-framed picture of Uncle Jerry on the table, blissfully unconscious that even the unbalanced door had been doctored to a degree of verisimilitude that would have deceived far sharper eyes than hers. It was at ten sharp the next morning that the chief clerk of Vice President Marston of the Chellingham Bank handed the latter the telephone with the information that someone wished to speak to him from the Trigg home. Uncle Jerry had dominated the affairs of this bank during his lifetime, and the widow retained control through her attorneys. This is Martin speaking, said a voice on the wire. Martin was one of the many secretaries who hovered about the old lady. Hello, Charlie. How are you? From this distance I should say you have a frog in your throat, said the genial banker. That's not worrying me half so much as other people's troubles, said the husky voice with a cough. The old lady wants those bronze medallions that are in the big strong box, and there is nothing to do but to bring the whole box up here to the house. Hmm. Well, in your case, I should advise calling out the 71st Regiment for a bodyguard, said the jocose banker. Thanks. I'm going to pass the buck to you. The old lady wants you to bring it up yourself. Huh. And so it was that the banker found himself, half an hour later, sitting in a closed automobile with two bank guards and an imposing-looking steel box, and bound, not unhappily at that, because the dangers of the city streets did not daunt him, for Uncle Jerry Trigg's house, as he had instructed the driver. As the car came to a stop at the curb, he sprang out and up the steps, waiting at the door opened by the second man for his two guards to bring in their precious burden. "'Mr. Martin, sir,' said the man, "'asked me to tell you that he was called out to the Sunnyside meeting "'and would not be able to see you, sir.' "'As Marston handed his hat and coat to the man, "'he nodded casually to two young men "'who were passing through the hall to the rear of the first floor. "'The whisking of a white apron about the turn of the stairs "'indicated the presence of one of the Irish maids. "'This house smells good,' exclaimed the banker to himself, "'as though he had stumbled on a new source of happiness on this visit. He looked into the drawing-room, but retreated immediately, his finger to his lips, to enjoin silence on the two men who were depositing their burden. The old lady, her knitting fallen to the floor, was asleep in the chair. The cat sat purring before the fire. The rag doll of all the room seemed the only thing alive, and it sat staring accusingly at him with its big eyes. As he took in the scene, something in him welled up and overflowed. It was the memory of just such a scene long, long ago when he was a boy, and the recollection came on him with a rush of warmth and tenderness. He tiptoed to a chair and sat down quietly, signaling to his men to place their burden in the doorway and withdraw as quietly as possible. Now the old lady stirred herself uneasily, sighed, and opened her eyes. For a moment she did not see him, but smiled at the old cat stretching itself 
in the extravagant manner of a languorous feline before the warm glow of the fire. Everything in the room seemed to rouse itself with her. Her eyes came to a start to the figure of Marston, who rose and came forward. "'Don't move!' he cried, smiling and reaching out his hand to implore her to remain seated. But she rose to her feet and pushed the cane ahead of her. She permitted him to help her to her seat again, and she sat holding his hard hand between her two withered hands and looking out the window. It was a silence he dared not break, though it made him uncomfortable. It was broken at last by the approach of the second man bearing tea-things. At eleven every day Mrs. Jeremiah Trigg had her tea, and her cat was given a bit of cheese to nibble. Mrs. Trigg, in talking about cats, used to say that she ascribed the faithfulness of her cats to their eleven o'clock cheese. Marston had come with his expectations made up for a brisk chat with the old lady, but it turned out to be rather a trying situation for him. She cried softly throughout the time they sat before the tray, crying softly as old women cry when they spin the thread of memories that are dearest to them. He made one or two ineffectual attempts to say something, but his efforts ended so lamely that he gave it up, and it was with great relief that he heard the approaching footsteps of the servant. Madame is, Madame is in one of her moods, thinking, today. You understand, sir? said the second man in his ear. Marston looked up, and the man averted his eyes quickly. Marston nodded his head. He rose and drew off to a corner with the man. I understand, he said, if the world only knew Uncle Jerry as we remember him. The man nodded vigorously and seemed about to cry. Was she signed for this? Oh, a woman of the secretary's come, asked the bank official, indicating the box. I think she will, as they are the bronze medallions she wishes, and she wants to find them herself. I will see, sir. The man stepped to the side of the old lady and whispered to her. She looked up and nodded vigorously, smiling through her tears. "'Oh, you understand, Thomas, don't you?' she said. "'Ah, I shall be so happy when we are together again. There, there, why should we torture you, young people?' And she dragged her eyes back from the fire, and with trembling hand wrote her signature. Marston made his adieu as quickly as possible. The man opened the door for him, and seeing two men in conversation with the bank guards, who stood at the curb waiting orders, drew back hurriedly and said, "'Are they friends of yours, sir? We must be very careful, as so many people are ready to take advantage of the old lady.' "'You don't need to worry about them,' said Marston, laughing, for he recognized in the two men Warden, the managing head of the Bankers' Protective Association for the Metropolitan District, and young Moberly Grimsey. The man inside was still peering through the interstices of the ground-glass carving of the door as Marston went down the steps. "'What are you two doing in this neck of the woods? I thought you were on your vacation, Grimsey, with that young devil Godall.' "'This house is pinched,' said Warden, starting up the steps with a laugh as he ran his arm through the bankers and turned him back. "'I have been waiting for you to come out to have a good look at your face when the ceiling comes down on your head.' So saying, he touched the bell. He looked through the glass of the door impudently. "'Run, you terrier!' he chuckled. And he raised his heavy cane and shattered the glass of the door. "'Tell Captain McCarthy he had better bring up his men and throw them across on both sides. The whole town will be here in another five minutes,' he said, turning and addressing a man in the street who was off at a sharp run. The astonished Marston saw a patrol wagon around the corner emptying itself in a jiffy. 
People in the street had already begun to gather in front of the house, attracted by the sound of the broken glass and the sudden appearance of the policeman in force. Warden had run his hand inside the door and slipped the lock. Marston, shivering, followed him with young Grimsey close at his heels. The parlor was empty, save for the cat and the rag doll. The old lady was gone, the steel box was gone, and the second man was nowhere in sight. The banker stared about him. Warden and Grimsey looked at him soberly for a moment, but the strain was too much for them, and they broke into shouts of mirth. The color gradually returned to his face, and his knees again showed signs of behaving themselves under this kind of attack. If that box was gone, and gone beyond recovery, whatever might be the explanation of this weird situation, Marston concluded that the superintendent of the Banker's Protective Association would be laughing on the other side of his mouth. "'For the love of the holies, don't stand there grinning at me as though I were a lunatic. Tell me, what does it all mean?' cried the amazed banker. "'Come with us,' said Warden, showing no desire for haste or inclination for any other task than relieving the curiosity of his friend. He took Marston by the arm, and the three marched upstairs. The bedroom floor above the parlor was empty, bare-floored. So was the third floor and the servants' quarters above. So was the basement floor.' With the exception of the parlor floor, the house was stripped to the very walls. "'But, Mrs. Trigg, where has she gone?' cried Marston, when he had convinced himself. "'I don't know, I'm sure,' said Warden. "'Mrs. Trigg hasn't been in this house in twenty hours, to my knowledge.' "'Hasn't been in the house, you idiot? Then whom, pray, have I been taking tea with in this room not ten minutes ago?' "'Marston,' said Warden. You have been entertained for the last quarter of an hour or so by a stock company composed of some of the most distinguished actors and actresses out of jail. Mrs. Trigg was moved out of this house yesterday, and the furniture of this room was shifted to her new home just above 52nd Street before she returned from her drive. With the connivance of a rascally second butler, the cleverest gang of thieves this side of the River Jordan rigged up the rooms again for your especial entertainment this morning, and I suspect, he said, glancing slyly at young Grimsey, that if it had not been for Grimsey here and his friend Godall, you would now be poor by the several hundred thousand dollars worth of bonds that steel box contained. Come, he cried with a laugh as he snapped his fingers in Marston's ears, for that person was standing transfixed like one in a trance. I'll take you behind the scenes if you want to see the rest of the show. The three went to the garden in the rear of the house. In one corner, handcuffed, snarling and defiant, stood the second butler, the key of the combination. In another corner were three women, two of them girls made up for the parts of the two Irish maids, and the third, the old woman who had entertained Marston with tea and tears so effectively. The girls were in a state of collapse. But the woman, amazing in her make-up for the part even now when she had lost her countenance, stared boldly at them. In the basement were the two young men who had masqueraded as secretaries. "'I congratulate you, madam,' said Marston, not quite himself again. "'Your talents are worthy of better things, believe me.' "'You needn't inform her as to her talents,' said Warden. "'That woman is Mary Mannerly. We used to think she was the greatest emotional actress that ever lived back in the seventies. Lord, until I found she was in this game, I thought she was dead and buried. The rascals dragged her out of an old folks' home for the part. Marston shook his head, bewildered. You ought to see the bunch we just nailed downtown at the restaurant, cried Warden. There was John D. and Andy Carnegie and Cat. 
Tom, when I first laid eyes on a bunch an hour ago, I swear I couldn't tell at first whether I had stumbled into a meeting of the directors of the Steel Trust or Mrs. Jarley's Waxworks. Would you be surprised, said Godall, taking the arm of the man in the crowd that surged about the police lines, would you be surprised if I should ask you to accompany me? The man he addressed was less than five feet tall, though he had the head and shoulders of a giant. The massive head turned slowly and regarded the speaker. Godall's manner was to all appearances friendly. He was smiling, and his tone was casual, so that none of the crowd, eager to seize on a morsel of excitement outside, turned to look in his direction. The small man regarded Godall steadily under his gray brows. What a grand old warlock it is, thought Godall. I should not be surprised, said the man in clear, bell-like tones. If you will indicate the way I shall be pleased to follow, or will you permit me to precede you? Godal turned and shouldered his way out of the crowd, and on the outskirts he was joined by the man with a ludicrous body and the Jovian head. They strode along side by side. Clearly, thought Godal, David Hartman considered himself under arrest. The old man had been absent when the police raided the meeting place downtown, and as a member of the crowd had watched the fiasco of his great plan here in front of the mansion that his great brain had furnished and peopled with play-actors and properties, he had again escaped them. "'I am sorry to have spoiled your scene,' said Godall, as they swung along together. "'I have been watching you for three years, Hartman. Ha! That was beautiful when you gave that chorus girl dinner to Senator Newstead in Chicago.' A year before, the whole country had been convulsed at the circumstantial tale of a gay dinner in the public dining-room of the auditorium at which Senator Newstead, candidate for governor on the Republican ticket, was the apparent host. The pious old senator bitterly denounced the calumny, but there were plenty of witnesses to swear that it really was he, and he was snowed under at the polls. "'I could stand for that and bless you for it, Hartman,' went on Godall, and the Blackburn case, and the Hamilton affair." But when you came to tamper with the comfort and happiness of a woman who has paid the penalty of martyrdom simply for being good and doing good, I step in and say no. I didn't know you had shifted to New York until my red-headed friend fell in on your rehearsal the other night. The red-headed boy, yes, said David Hartman to himself, though aloud, and carving his words with that devilish trick of enunciation he alone possessed. Yes, I thought so. My man, he added, indicating Godall, though he did not deign to turn his head in the direction of the young man. I do not believe I care to discuss the matter with you. I am presuming that you have the authority to ask me to accompany you. No, said Godall, with a consciousness of a bitter taste in his mouth. I am taking you to the Grand Central Station to see you aboard any train you may elect to choose. See, we are here now. I have money. It is yours. Even now the police of the country are seeking you. Your mates will squeal. That's absolute. I am ready to aid you in any way I can, not because of today, but because of— Godal ran his fingers through the air in front of him impatiently. You are not of the police, then, or with authority to detain me? Passers-by turned their heads to catch the nuances of that voice, though the words were low. Godall shook his head. No, said the voice. No, said Godall. David Hartman came to a stop and raised his hand. 
the hand which Moberly Grimsey said seemed to float in the air. He waved it at a policeman who stood on the corner. The policeman came to his side and bent over. "'You do not know me, my man,' he said. "'I am David Hartman. That means nothing to you. The police seek me. I am wanted for robbery. I might tear my soul to shreds in hopeless flight, but I am marked. See my ridiculous little legs. My friend,' he said, turning to Godal and taking him by the hand, I do not know who you may be, but I thank you. If I did not so love this bitter life, I might have the courage to die, but I have not the courage. That voice, ringing like a knell, sang in his ears as Godal hurried across town. What would a hundred thousand dollars in gold bonds more or less have meant to the old lady anyway? He cried suddenly to himself as he stopped and called to handsome. Nothing. Bah! End of an All-Star Cast End of Adventures of the Infallible Godal by Frederick Irving Anderson Recording by Winston Tharp